want to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34 today. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. As you're turning there, I remember um, when I was, I believe, 27 years old, there was an event that was supposed to happen in our country and really in our world that was causing a lot of people a lot of anxiety. According to the, the people who were saying this was going to happen, this event was going to potentially bring the end of civilization. Everything that we knew was going to change. Um, our, our computers were supposed to stop working. Our cars were supposed to stop uh, running. Airplanes were going to fall out of the sky when this event took place. And it caused a lot of worry and a lot of fear and a, and a lot of anxiety. And much to my disappointment, many Christian leaders and Christians jumped on board with the hysteria. Now, you know the event I'm talking about probably, if you haven't figured it out already, is, was the Y2K scare, right? The Y2K scare. I remember it. I'm sure you guys do as well. How... Scared everyone was that our whole civilization was going to collapse because the computers didn't know how to, to, to transfer over from the digits 1999 to 2000, right? And everything was going to fall apart. And like I said, there were, there were many Christians, many people I knew in my circle of influence, they were, they were scared. And they began to, to, to store up lots of food. And, and one particular Christian leader was calling on believers to store up you know, thousands of cans of food and even store up weapons if they needed to. Because it was going to be all chaos. You know, everyone's going to be fending for themselves once this Y2K bug hit. And I remember thinking at the time, why are believers reacting like the world? Why are believers so worried about the Y2K bug? It's like God is in the sky and he can't figure out what to do with the Y2K bug? Oh my goodness, I didn't plan on the fact that eventually the digit one would have to turn into the digit two. Like God was helpless and we all needed to worry like the rest of the world worried. And it was utter foolishness. As a matter of fact, this one particular Christian leader on the radio, I actually lost a lot of respect for him and I stopped listening to him from that point forward after the whole Y2K thing. Because people were just freaking out. Of course it came to nothing. All right, I remember on that New Year's Eve sitting there with our friends and uh, Noah was two years old and he had a little banner on that said, you know, welcome 2000 on it. You know, we, and I remember lifting up my sparkling grape juice uh, to all my friends there and that the ball fell on TV and the, the, the clock hit and we, you know, clinked our little sparkling grape juices together and we all sat there for a second. The lights didn't go out. We didn't hear explosions in the distance. There wasn't machine gun fire coming from the next neighborhood. Oh my goodness, we survived. And it was all for naught. My whole point in bringing that up this morning is that we live in an era again where there's lots of hysteria right now. With everything this summer, I mentioned it last week, ISIS and Ebola and the border, and a thousand other things that are in the news headlines that can cause us to be fearful and anxious. And I believe this morning's text, part of the reason Jesus gave it, is to help believers to stand out from the world. To not carry the same anxieties that the world carries. We are to be different. Believers are to handle their anxiety, their fear, their worry in a much different way. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, show us the right way to handle anxiety and fear and worry. Now we know that anxiety is the main focus of this text today because Jesus commands us not to be anxious three times in this text. And the word anxious itself is mentioned six times in this text. So there's no doubt what the theme of this passage is. So I want to study it well today. Of course, this text is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're studying the Sermon on the Mount as part of our series entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. 
And for those visiting us this morning, this series is a chronological, verse-by-verse walk through the earthly life and ministry of our Lord Jesus using all four Gospels. Now, at the very beginning of today's text, we have the word, therefore. And that means that this week's text flows logically right out of last week's text. Matter of fact, if you'll remember, I said that they both together form one segment of the Sermon on the Mount. The first portion that we studied last week is focused on what we treasure or what we value. And now this section this week focuses on what we worry about. And as I mentioned last week, those two things are essentially the same. We value what we worry about, and we worry when what we value is threatened. And we saw last week that Jesus commanded us to have hearts that treasure the right treasure, namely heavenly treasures. Then Jesus showed us that the evidence of hearts that treasure the right treasures is seen in whether or not we have eyes that lead us to let go of our earthly treasures and to be generous to others. Finally, we saw that the location of our heart and the focus of our eyes will reveal who our true master is. We either serve God or we serve money. We cannot serve both. And so it's out of that last thing that Jesus says about serving God or money that this text flows out of. So please stand now as we read Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. We stand in the honor of the reading of God's word because we believe it is the infallible, inerrant, final, authoritative word from God. And this is Jesus speaking as part of the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon is his sermon that he's giving to his disciples. So this is addressed to believers. Not that there's not application here for unbelievers, but it is addressed to believers. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. The word of the Lord says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great passage of Scripture. Jesus, we thank you for teaching this to to your disciples, to us, your followers. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take this infallible, inspired, breathed out word and now make it to have an effect in our hearts. If there be any heart in here this morning, Lord, that's an unbelieving heart, I pray that you would penetrate it, soften it. Make it ready to hear the word and respond. If there be any heart here this morning, Lord, that is, that is covered with weeds, with the cares and the worries of this world is choking out the word, I pray, Father, that you just clear out those worries, those anxieties, and let them hear your word. So, Father, grant me grace to speak properly and grant us all ears to hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If the great danger in the first section of this text, the the verses 16 through 24, if the great danger there is us pursuing or treasuring earthly stuff, then the great danger in this second section is us worrying about earthly stuff, regardless of whether or not we've actually stored it up, all right? But it's not as if, I don't want us to make the mistake as as I read in a couple of places, it's not as if the first part, verses 19 through 24, It's only for rich people. And the second part, verses 24 through 34, 
is only for the less fortunate. Like rich people are the only ones that store up treasures and poor people are the only ones that worry about provision. We, we know that you don't have to be rich to sinfully store up earthly treasures. Nor do you have to be poor to sinfully worry about your material needs being met. Matter of fact, this was made very clear to me this week as I read an article from the New York Times. It was an older article about lifestyles, lifestyles of millionaires in Silicon Valley. Now, the article interviewed three different very successful people who had high-paying jobs in the technology industry. Each one of these people was a multimillionaire. Yet despite their wealth, all of them were unashamedly driven by their desire for more riches and more accolades. I mean, they didn't hide it. One man interviewed said this, quote, You're nothing here if you're not making $10 million. Another person said, and I quote again, Here, the top 1% chases the top one-tenth of 1%, and the top one-tenth of 1% chases the top one-one-hundredth of 1%. But the article went on to highlight the fact that despite all this material gain that so many of these people had been able to to achieve, these people were very anxious. One woman, despite being worth $200 million, said that she and her husband, who they were both now 62 years old, were going to have to continue to work well into their 70s in order to maintain the lifestyle they desired. And shockingly, one of these millionaires said that he works 80 hours a week And suffers from a lot of anxiety because, this is quote, a few million dollars just doesn't go as far as it used to. So just take that article as proof that just because someone's wealthy and has material possessions doesn't mean they're free from anxiety. And I'm sure I could cite many other examples to say just because you don't have a lot of material possessions doesn't mean you don't store them up and treasure them. The God of this world, the the God of mammon, never delivers. The God of money, he never delivers. He only leaves us with anxiety. He promises happiness, he promises peace, and he leaves us anxious. That's why we read in Hebrews 13, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And then the author of Hebrews says this, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, why does the author of Hebrews have to remind us that God will never leave us and forsake us? Because when we treasure earthly treasures, it goes hand in hand with anxiety. It goes hand in hand with worry. But of course, anxiety is not limited to anxiety over money. Matter of fact, um, we may have a hard time actually relating to what Jesus is saying here. Most of those listening to Jesus only had, as I mentioned last week, a a few changes of clothes. Maybe one even, some of the people listening to Jesus. So when Jesus says, don't be anxious about your clothing, and last week he talked about moths eating away at clothing, okay, that, that had a lot stronger effect on his listeners. For us, we walk into our closet and we have lots of clothes. Matter of fact, in Jesus' day, to have clothes that had any coloring, any dye in them, only rich people could afford clothes that had dye in them. And so we go to the closet and we get upset and get anxious because we can't find this that matches this. Oh. And and I'm sure you've had it like in our house. Kids come and say, I can't find anything to wear. Are you kidding me? You have clothes sticking out from under your bed and out of your drawers. There is plenty to wear. You can't find what you want to wear, so stop being anxious. And of course... When it comes to food, in Jesus' day, especially the, the people of the, of the lower economic status, they bought what they needed for the next day. They simply worked, and they bought food, they ate the food, and they worked, and they bought food, and they ate the food, and it worked that way. And we go to our refrigerator, and we see things that will still last for two more months. Okay, that lunch meat's still good. It won't expire until December of 2018. That's how we live. So it's hard for us to get into the the mindset here of the type of anxiety that Jesus is speaking of. But we have plenty of other things that we're anxious about. Just as we saw last week, we can treasure other earthly things other than money like recognition, accomplishments. Even our family can become an earthly treasure that we don't turn over to the Lord. 
So too we can be anxious and worried about many earthly things, such as what people think about us. We can worry about being the perfect spouse. We can worry about our kids' education. We can worry about potential natural disasters. Anxiety comes in many, many forms. Matter of fact, Jesus uses this same Greek word that he uses here in Matthew 6, this word for anxious, merimnao. He uses it in a very gentle, loving rebuke of Martha. You remember Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42? Okay, Martha, Jesus comes over to Martha and Mary's house and they welcome him and, and he comes in. And, and what does Mary do? She sits down and she rests at his feet and begins to listen to his teaching. But Martha, okay, Martha, it says in verse 40, was distracted by much serving. And she went up to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care? Now let me pause right there. That's the same question the disciples asked Jesus in the boat when they thought they were sinking. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Friends, Anxiety always causes us to question God's care for us. So let me go on. She says, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious. It's the same word. You are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. This word anxious in the Greek comes from a root word meaning to be torn or be divided. And that's exactly what anxiety or worry does. It, it tears us away from the truth, from what is true, what is reality. It makes us, makes us believe in lies. It tears us away from where our security should be found, namely in God himself. So as we battle this morning to put off anxiety, the anxiety Jesus speaks of is both the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches which so easily choke out our faith. Now, I want us to be careful this morning to discern between legitimate concerns and sinful anxieties. Paul also uses this word anxious uh, when he refers to his daily anxiety for the churches in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. But But what Paul was experiencing wasn't sinful anxiety. It was a genuine godly concern, not a, a sinful uh, consuming anxiety. We see something similar, Paul says in Philippians 2, 20. Paul was often concerned, anxious, and even in anguish over his churches. Likewise, we can have legitimate concerns in life. Concerns about our job, concerns about our children. I mean, Noah got his driver's license this week. If that doesn't cause legitimate anxiety, I don't know what does. Okay? I'm genuinely, legitimately concerned every time he gets behind the wheel. And I think that's a justifiable concern. But those legitimate concerns can begin to consume us if we fail to turn them over to God. If I chain Noah to his bed and say, you're never driving, buddy, I've gone a little bit overboard with that concern. Legitimate concerns can quickly become sinful anxieties. And I know that even calling anxiety a sin may actually create anxiety in some of your hearts. But it's a sin. First, we are commanded by Jesus clearly three times in today's text and later by Paul not to be anxious. It is not a suggestion. It is a command. And secondly, the very nature of anxiety is the polar opposite of faith. And the scriptures tell us whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And faith is the key factor in today's text. If you look quickly at verse 30, Jesus rebukes them, O you of little faith. Now having said all that, I want to first acknowledge that we, we all struggle to a certain degree, differing degrees perhaps, but we all struggle with anxiety to a certain degree. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. We're told to do that. Well, we can't cast them if we don't have them. We all have some anxiety. And so the question when applying today's text isn't if we are anxious, but when we are anxious. And let me acknowledge, secondly, that anxiety can be a very debilitating challenge. And addressing it requires biblical balance, careful precision, spiritual wisdom, and pastoral care. And Jesus gives us just that in today's text. Jesus is so gentle with us. 
Psychologists want to label all of our anxieties as different phobias that we can blame on others and fix with medication. But Jesus, the great physician, has a different prescription. He is so loving. He is so gentle, just as he was with Martha. And I see at least four things. Now, you'll see in your notes, and don't freak out, there are eight points. (laughs) I see at least four things that Jesus wants us to believe about our Father that will help us deal with our anxiety. Four things he wants us to believe regarding our Father in order to help us put away anxiety. And then I see four ways Jesus wants us to behave in light of that faith. So, so in your notes today, I'm going to go through these fairly quickly because we have a lot of points. So the first one is about what Jesus wants us to believe. And first thing I want us to see is that Jesus wants us to believe that our Father is our faithful creator. Let's go to the text here. Verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. And here's the key uh, part of this verse I want us to focus in on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What does Jesus mean by saying this? Well, he's using, first of all, in this text, in a couple of different places, a rhetorical device okay, called a fortiori, which is um, an argument that states, if this, then how much more this? Maybe you've seen that a lot in the scripture. Jesus says, if this, then how much more this? And it's a deduction from greater to lesser. And we see this type of argument a few times in today's passage, and it's implicitly uh, used here in this uh, section that I just read. Essentially, Jesus is saying, if you have been given life, And if you have been given a body, how much more will your heavenly Father provide food to live on and clothes to protect your body? In other words, think about your life. Who created you? Who gave you this body? God did. You were not a result of an accident. You were not the result of random cosmic forces. You were created. You were designed. And so the first help Jesus gives us in dealing with anxiety is to encourage us to believe in that. The world, the secular world we live in is trying to tell us that everything's just an accident and random. And and Jesus, that causes great anxiety. And Jesus comes to us and says, don't believe that. Believe the truth. God gave you life. God gave you a body. We need to believe Psalm 139, 13. Which says, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And then in verse 15, we were intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Do you believe that this morning? How did you get this life of yours? How did you get this body? Where did it come from? And which is more important to God? The food that sustains your life or your life itself? Which is more important to the Father, the clothes that cover your body or your body itself? Man cannot create life. We do not give ourselves being. None of us came into this world by an act of our free will. How many of you willed to be born? We were given life because God decided to give it. How many of us chose our hair color? Did you choose your gender? Did you sequence your own DNA? No. God did all of that. And do we believe that? If so, it will help free us from anxiety. I'm not sure how the evolutionist handles anxiety. I really am not. If you believe that God gave you life and being, if you believe that he designed and molded you just as he saw fit, then why are you worried about food and clothes and anything else? If it was his will to create you, then trust his will to sustain you. And that's the very next thing we see here. Jesus wants us to believe that our Father is the all-wise sustainer. Now, Jesus employs a common Jewish teaching method here, a method we'll see that we see all throughout the, the Proverbs, where the teacher would encourage the listeners to look at creation and from creation draw certain conclusions about God's character and about our responsibility. Example of that that I mentioned last week is Proverbs 6 6, where where the, the where Solomon tells us to look at ants. To observe ants and to copy their behavior. So we see Jesus use that method of teaching twice here. Once in verse 46 and then later in verse 30. So let's read those two verses. 
Jesus says in verse 26, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And then in verse 30, I mean, sorry, in verse 28, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Again, we see the same style of argument. If God does this, how much more will he do this? So if God feeds birds, how much more will he feed us? If God clothes weeds, and weeds is really a better translation than lilies there. If God clothes weeds, how much more will he clothe us? So what is Jesus teaching us about the Father that he wants us to believe in? He is showing us that God the Father sustains life by providing for our needs. He does care for us. Martha was wrong. The disciples in the boat as they were crossing and the storm came up and they asked, Master, do you care? They were wrong. They should have known that Jesus does care. Our Father in heaven is not an absent landlord, but is actively guiding and sustaining all things, guiding them in such a way that he is working all things together for our good. The Christian worldview should cause us to be the most anxious free people in the world. If we truly believe that God is absolutely sovereign and absolutely sustaining all things, that should cause us, if we really believe it, to be the most anxious free people in the world. The problem is we don't believe it, as we should. We believe in a cosmology where God is in control and actively involved in the most minute details of this universe. So God's not only sending the rain to the crops, he is sustaining the atomic structure of each little raindrop. We're not deists who believe that God designed the universe and then started the whole machine and now leaves it to run itself. That worldview would leave me very anxious. Uh, we're not pantheists that believe that God is simply part of the machine, an impersonal force permeating all things. That worldview would leave me very anxious. We're not humanists who believe this world is simply in the hands of humans. Our job is to make things better and that, that God will, will generally submit to everything we want him to do. God's waiting for us. I'd make this world a better place, but you humans down there, you just got to do something. That worldview, friends, would leave me very anxious. Friends, I believe the Bible, the Bible teachings, the Bible's teaching that our God is actively involved. And not only is he actively involved, he is actively sustaining all things. And actually, since God's activity in this world is always mediated through his son, it is through Jesus that he sustains all things. Hebrews 1, 3 says, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now that relieves my anxiety. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Oh, how we need to remember that. Do you know what I fear? Do you know what I am anxious about? Other than needles and people drawing my blood, which causes me to have little mini panic attacks. All right? that, I think that's actually a justifiable concern. I don't, I don't need to turn that one over to the Lord. Other than needles, you know what, you know what I get anxious about? Confrontations, disappointing people. That's what I get anxious about. I get anxious about business meetings, which is right after the service. If you hang here about 10 minutes after the service, we'll have our business meeting. I get anxious about those type of things. But I need to see that the same focus on the Father's sustaining power is the remedy for that anxiety too. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, God's word has all the answers for every anxiety we're dealing with. And listen to this one. He says, do not fear, and this is in the context of Jesus telling the disciples they were going to be persecuted, there were going to be confrontations. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. 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 
No sparrow can conk over and fall to the ground without God's permission. So Jesus says that in order to help the disciples handle confrontation. Because my problem isn't confrontation. My problem is the sin of idolatry in my own heart and pride and fearing man more than God. That's where the anxiety springs forth from. So God loves birds. God feeds birds. God loves grass. He clothes grass with flowers. But God loves us in a much greater way, a personal love. And therefore, how much more will he provide all that we need and sustain us in all things? And that leads me to our next point. Jesus wants us to believe, guys, to have faith that our Father is the lover of our souls. Verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? It's the same thing he said when he was talking to us about the sparrows. Are you not of more value than they? It's a rhetorical question Jesus is asking here because the answer is obvious. Yes, we are of much more value than birds. First, because we're humans created in the image of God. And secondly, if you're a believer here this morning, because we are his children. Christians, we are redeemed. We are saved. We are brought into the family of God. There is a special love of God for his elect. The love of the Son poured out upon those who have been united to the Son. And and that love, we should meditate upon that love. Meditating upon that love should free us from anxiety. And it's all throughout the scriptures, like Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If you are part of the people of God, if you are part of the church, then this promise and countless other promises just like it are for you. He loves you and he fights for you. Our God is our warrior. He is doing battle on our behalf Anxiety creeps in and tries to convince us that we are alone, but God's word assures us that that is not true. One of my favorite accounts in all of Scripture is, 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 comes from the life of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6. Um, you, to, to give you context here, Elisha, the Syrian king, has been coming against the, 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 the people of Israel, and, and, but the people of Israel keep thwarting the Syrian king because Elisha keeps giving prophecies as to what's going to happen. And when the Syrian king finds out about this, he goes, well, how come the Israelites are always a step ahead of us? And someone says, well, that's because they got this prophet dude named Elisha. And he's, he's telling the king everything is going to happen. So the Syrians decide, you know what, let's go get Elisha. Let's go take care of this dude once for all. Let's take him, let's catch him, let's kill him. So the Syrians go after Elisha. And, and we read this story here um, where Elisha's servant looks out the window and sees all these chariots and all these soldiers gathered around the city. And he begins to freak out and he goes and gets his master and tells Elisha what's going on. And Elisha says to him in verse 16 of 2 Kings 6, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw and behold The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I love that story. If our eyes could only see what God is doing on behalf of his children, our anxieties would fly away. If we could just see what God is doing on our behalf. If we could just see how God is working all things together for our good. How do we see that? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. Even though our physical eyes cannot see it, we must believe in our hearts that the, our Father is the lover of our souls and he's doing battle on our behalf. He is at work on our behalf because he loves us with the love he has for the Son. So what encourages us how do, we, how do we look with eyes of faith? How do we have this faith that Jesus wants us to have? We go to the word of God. The, the spirit has breathed out these words to strengthen us, to guide us, to give us faith. So we read Romans 8. It says this, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? That is anxiety-relieving truth. We need to go to God's Word and let passages like that be like a double-edged sword going into the gut of anxiety. This kills the sin of anxiety. According to this text, listen, not even famine or nakedness, lack of food or clothing will cause us to question our Father's love for us. Why? Because life is more than food. And the body is more than clothing. You know, they can starve our physical bodies to the point where we die. And they can strip away our clothes and leave us exposed to the point where we die. But God's promises have not failed. For we will find ourselves in a better country, a heavenly one, where we'll be robed by our Lord with white robes and where we will feast with him forever. They cannot starve us. They cannot take away our clothing. Because we have heavenly clothing and we have heavenly food that awaits us. So we do not fear those who can take away material clothing and starve our physical bodies. We fear and love the true sovereign of the universe. And that's the next point Jesus, uh, next thing Jesus points out to us. We, Jesus wants us to believe that our Father is absolutely sovereign. Our Father is absolutely sovereign. He does this by showing us that we are not sovereign. Look at verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Worry and anxiety is not only unnecessary because our Father is our creator, sustainer, and lover of our souls. It's also unproductive because in the end we can do nothing apart from God's will. The rhetorical question Jesus is asking this time is simple. When's the last time anxiety worked for you? When's the last time anxiety worked out for you? When's the last time anxiety fixed something that was going on in your life? Jesus is saying that our worry cannot accomplish anything. It is unproductive. We can't even add a single hour to our lives. Jesus says that our worry adds no days to our lives. God is the one who determines the number of our days. Job 14.5 says his days are numbered and the number of his months is with you. And you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Speaking of God there. The passage we just read in Psalm 139 Verse 16 says, it says, In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Psalm 39, 4 says, O Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. God is the one who is absolutely sovereign. The verses preceding the ones we just read in Romans 8 say this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Praise God that he is the one who is sovereign over our lives. That is anxiety-freeing truth. It should free us from anxiety in many things. Matter of fact, texts like that should free us in, in understanding God's sovereignty, should free us from even anxiety in ministry or evangelism or preaching, where we think we've got to do something. Actually, when we understand that God rules and not us, we work hard because He is sovereign, and He guarantees that results will come when His word goes forth. We, do we believe these things? Do we believe that God is sovereign? Oh, we of little faith. Our anxiety over whatever it is always surfaces when our faith wanes. 
Oh, how we need more faith. We need to join the disciples when they prayed in Luke 17, 5. Increase our faith. And we need to be like the demon-possessed boy's father who cried out in Mark 9, 24. I believe, but help my unbelief. We believe, we believe all these things about our Father. He is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is the lover of our souls. He is sovereign. We believe, but our anxiety betrays us. Oh, Lord, help our unbelief. Friends, in light of these things Jesus wants us to believe in, he also calls us to live differently. And I'm going to go through these points very fast. I'm going to put them all up at the same time. Jesus wants us to behave in a way that, first of all, we stand out as the Father's kingdom people. We stand out as the Father's kingdom people. Oh, you of little faith, verse 31, therefore do not be anxious saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. Verse 32, for the Gentiles, and this is just a a general term referring to those who are not God's people. It's not an ethnic term here that Jesus is using. He's not using it in an ethnic way, I should say. For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your Father, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. When we have sinful worry, friends, we are no different than the rest of the world. We are no different than the Silicon Valley millionaires. We worry and we get anxious about all sorts of things, not the least of which is clothes to wear and food and drink to consume. But from the beginning, God has called on his people to live differently. Matter of fact, God will even ordain trials in our lives in order to teach us to live differently. Deuteronomy 8.3 says this, and he, God, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God in his sovereignty will ordain trials to teach us to not be anxious like the world is anxious. We want to be people who live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And people who live that way are people who submit to the Father's perfect rule. And that's the second point here. Submitting to the Father's perfect rule. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God. That is the rule of God. The Gentiles seek, they hunt, they pursue the things of the world. The people of this world seek the things of this world. These are fleshly passions that will destroy us if we pursue them. 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, we're supposed to be different. We're, we're aliens, right? I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Instead, we are to seek, we are to hunt, we are to pursue the things of God. Friends, if the church, if the church desired God as much as the average person desired the iPhone 6 this week, we'd experience revival. People, I read of one guy who waited in line 20 days, 20 days, and was willing to spend whatever to get this treasure that will not only fade away, but one day it'll be replaced by the iPhone 7, and then the 8, and then the 9. Utter foolishness, yet the world goes after it with passion and with zeal. I I looked at a little photo, I'm not trying to offend Apple here, I looked at this little photo spread of, of, of the different Apple stores across the world and there were people cheering with pumping their fists as people came out with a phone and clapping for them as they came out with a phone. Did you see the clip of the guy in Australia? The first person to get a, an iPhone 6, he opened the box and it fell out and hit the ground. I had to laugh and just feel like there's a certain amount of justice there, isn't it? No, it's probably just jealousy on my part because I'm like you are. We get lured by the things of this world, and then we get anxious. Well, that iPhone 4, it just doesn't work as well as it used to. I'm not going to get calls like I used to. And we get anxious and worried because our eyes are drawn to the things of the world just as bad as anyone else's. But we are called to live differently. We are called to seek God with that type of zeal and that type of passion. I want to see people pumping their fists because God has done amazing work in their life this week. I want to see people pumping their fists because the person they've been sharing the gospel with for the last three years finally was their heart was made soft and now they believe. I want to see people pumping their fists because of that. Seek the kingdom of God. The third thing on here is that Jesus wants to behave in a way that we strive for the Father's way of life. 
Not only are we seeking the kingdom of God, we are seeking his righteousness. By the way, this verb here, seek, is in the present active imperative, meaning it is a command that is an ongoing action in our life. We are to seek and keep on seeking. It's not like we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness like it's a treasure and we somehow find it and then we stop our efforts. No, we strive, we seek to live under God's rule, we seek to be like God, we seek sanctification, we work out our salvation, we do this because he, we belong to him and his spirit is already at work in us. So when we live for his righteousness, then our desires are transformed. They are morphed to conform to his desires. I have heard it said when sometimes people read this, all these things will be added to you, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I've heard it used in horrible ways to justify the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. If you just seek God, all these things will be added to you. And they take things to mean a brand new car, a full bank account. But that's not the things. These things will be added to us will only be the things we need. We cannot prostitute God to satisfy the desires of our flesh, the desires of our eyes, and the pride of our life. Now, he changes our desires. When we seek him and we seek his kingdom, we seek his righteousness, he changes our desires. He changes what we think we need to be added to us. And we realize that all we need are the basic supplies of life. He changes our desires like Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When we are truly seeking after God, the desires of our heart become oriented toward God and not us. And then we can rest. And then anxiety flees away. And so the final one here is that we stand still and rest in the Father's providential plans. Jesus wants to behave in a way that we stand still and rest in in God's providential plans. He will add what we need as he sees fit. He will give us good gifts even when we don't realize they're good gifts. Matthew 7, 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? But again, we don't limit God to our feeble, limited minds, what we consider to be good. Instead, we rest, we stand still, we trust in what he gives and in how he decides to give it. Therefore, verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. When we are released from anxiety, we learn to live in the now. Our enemy loves to try to get us to project things into the future. Has this ever happened to you? I told you what my anxiety is, confrontations, right? So my anxiety is confrontations. So you know what the enemy gets me doing? Is projecting. I know I'm going to have this meeting where there's going to be some sort of confrontation. So I project forward what the conversation is going to be like. And I'm already having the conversation in my mind. I'm already having a quick comeback. Well, yeah, yeah, all right. And it's all a lie. It hasn't happened. Satan is the father of lies. That's not true. That doesn't mean it won't happen like that, but it's not true right now. So stop being anxious about it. He said, trust, rest. This is wrong. It is sinful. James tells us that in in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, that boasting about tomorrow is sinful. And Jesus tells us here that worrying about it is sinful too. We need to live simply a restful lifestyle that says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So friends, this is Jesus' recipe for anxiety-free living. It's not always easy. This is one of those texts, one of those passages that, and God does this a lot, and sometimes I wish he'd stop. He, he makes me live it the week before I preach it. Um, and there's been a lot of anxiety in my family over this past couple of weeks. And so I can tell you, first person, it's not easy to deal with anxiety. We have to battle the unbelief. We have to battle it with the scriptures. I shared with the Bible study group this morning that, that um, Heather and I have been struggling with different anxieties. And the way we've helped each other all weekend long. She's in Orlando, by the way. And we've been texting scripture to each other. Texting scripture back and forth. We have to commit ourselves to the scriptures. We have to commit ourselves to memorizing the scriptures. We have to fight with the tools that God has given us. We have to fix our mind on God by meditating on his word. And that will lead us to simple day-by-day trust. And it will lead us to prayer as well. Philippians 4, the passage we read earlier, talks about praying, dealing with our anxieties through prayer. But all of this should make us different from the world. 
Okay, we should be different than the Gentiles. Whether it be where our food for the day is coming from, or whether it be the next Y2K, Christians should act differently, should handle anxiety differently. But if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you cannot have that victory. For that victory only comes through Christ. Christ purchased that victory for us and purchased the forgiveness of our sin, including, yes, the sin of anxiety. But you, my friend, if you're not a believer, do not have the resources to deal with your anxiety that the world throws at you. I beg you to put your faith in Christ this morning. Put your faith in Christ who died for sinners. He took the punishment we deserve for sin, even the sin of anxiety, upon his shoulders. He suffered and died in the place of his people. Despite the anxiety of the cross that would cause him to sweat great drops of blood, he did not give in to it. He did not despair. Instead, he entrusted himself to his Father. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And the grave could not hold him, for he has risen again and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus had victory over much greater anxiety that could ever come into your life. And he had that victory for you and me. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, the only way that applies to you is if you repent of your sin and repent of trusting yourself and turn to Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And for warriors like you and me, he gives us grace to overcome. His anxiety-defeating faith and obedience are at our disposal, disposal of those who believe, transforming us from warriors into warriors. Let's pray. Father, I praise you and thank you for the way you have been so faithful to each and every one of us here in this room. And I can personally speak of your faithfulness to us this morning, to my family. I don't remember the exact words, but the text I got right before I got into the pulpit this morning was my wife praising you because you are faithful. And she wanted me to remember that because she knew I was struggling with this message. So, Father, I thank that you've been faithful to all of us. And you are faithful to your own word. It does not return void. Father, I pray that we would be anxiety-defeating people. We all have it. We all struggle with it to a degree or another. God, give us victory over this anxiety by taking us into your word and through your word helping us to seek you, to seek your kingdom, to seek your rule, to come underneath your, your providential reign. And in doing so, desire to, to have your righteousness, your right living. We can't live rightly if we don't have your word pulsating through our veins. God, make us people of the word in all that we do this week. Lord, I don't know what anxieties people are facing out there this morning. There may be anxieties with relationship with children in this room. There may be anxieties in marriages this morning. There may be anxieties regarding someone's job. There may be anxieties about money, food, clothing. I don't know, Lord, but you do. You see into every heart that is in this room. And Lord, I pray that during this response time, we be truthful and honest with you. And that we cast all of our fears and our anxieties upon you. Because you have made a way. We don't have to carry them. So thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.